episode 41 of the podcast we call Two Chairs Talking. My name is David Grigg and I'm joined as always by my partner in crime, Perry Middlemiss. How are you, Perry? Good, thank you, David. Uh, yes, we will be dealing with a few partnerships in crime today, I believe, so <laughs> that, would, that, would be, that would be a good one. How are you keeping? Oh, I'm keeping pretty well. Um, we're, uh, it's pretty good news at the moment. The, the mandate of having to wear masks outside the, the house is, uh, has been lifted, and uh, we, they still want us to wear masks on public transport and in shops and things. It's uh, it's going to be a lot easier to walk around the block and up hills and things without having to wear a mask. So I'm looking forward to doing that. Too rainy today, unfortunately. Yes, well, the just over the last couple of days, it was been quite warm, and now being outside with a mask actually was quite hot. And uh, you yeah, can understand. Tough in yeah, it is going to be tough in summer in Australia, so you can understand it. During winter, it's not too bad. But for those beardy types like us as well, David, it makes it doubly worse because you have to get one big enough to cover the beard, and then yeah. then you get doubly hot because of it. But anyway, these are minor little problems that... Um, uh, Compared to the rest to of the world, these are very, very, very minor problems. Very, very minor. So we're happy to be where we are and we're happy to be in the situation we are. So that's good. But we're not talking about apocalypses today, David. Yeah, we're going to do a bit of crime today, a bit of a mystery. I've actually got one book which isn't quite crime, but I've I've shoehorned it in there anyway. What the hell? Yeah, well, I've got one that's sort of yeah, right on the edge but we'll get to that and we'll talk to that when we come to it sure. so, but that's okay all right so what what have, you, what have you got first up i want to start off with uh the good turn by dervla mctiernan this is the third in mctiernan's series of crime novels featuring the irish policeman detective sergeant cormac riley i think i've spoken about the other two previously on yep. this podcast the first of these, well, I'll just to give you a brief, brief background because it's important we get this background figured out. The first one's called The Ruin. I've probably mispronounced that. This is the, the first in the series where uh, Riley has decided to leave a job that he has in a special crimes unit in Dublin and go to Galway because he's following his partner who's got a new job in a pharmaceutical company over there. Now, that one did very well when it first came out because it won the Dear Kelly Best First Novel, the Davitt Award, which is Australian Women Writing Award, and the Barry Award, which is an American award, which is pretty good. Now, the follow-up to that, Scholar, deals basically with um, Riley's partner, Emma, being implicated in a a murder uh, of a a young woman who's identified as the heir to Ireland's most successful pharmaceutical company. So they think this woman's sort of a possible future billionaire and there she is lying dead in the street and that's not too flash. Uh, so that novel won the uh, International Thriller Award for Best Paperback. So she's got some good history on the award side here. So I was looking forward to this one. I had some, I had some reservations about the first two, but I'll talk about those when, uh, when we get there. Yep. Now, this one starts with Riley still in Galway, but he's on the outer a bit. Uh, a lot of the people, a lot of these colleagues in the Galway Police Department are very suspicious of him. They can't work out why the heck he's actually left this really good, tremendous job that everybody would give an arm and a leg for in Dublin to come and work in Galway. And there's also a lot of backstabbing going on. There's a lot of people gossiping behind his back about possible interactions he had with a victim or another policewoman and you know, things. There's a there's a there's a whispering campaign going on behind his back to try and bring him down. Now, the most of the Galway police uh, are involved in this long-running drug smuggling surveillance investigation, and Riley's in the police station um, at on this particular day when there's a call come in to say that a young girl has been kidnapped in broad daylight from the streets of uh, of Galway. He tries to, Riley, goes to his boss and says, look, I'm going to need more information. This is really important. We have to basically get onto this. No, 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 you can't have anybody with, everybody's tied up on this drug thing. No, 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 this young girl has been kidnapped now. She could possibly die. No, 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 you can't do that. Just get on with it. Do, take what you've got and get on with it. So he does. So he goes off to um, uh, investigate the crime by um, interviewing the family and also the eyewitness, who happens to be a young kid of only about 10 or 11 or 12. So therefore, everybody thinks that he's just making it up. But he's actually got 
a video of it, which he's taken with his iPad. They take the iPad, he sends the stuff through to um, uh, Fisher, his offsider at the police station. Fisher basically checks it. They can see a partial... They work out what type of car it is. They can work out the partial um, plate number. And they actually track it using uh, um, uh, cameras in, in, in the street. And they work out where he is, but Riley's not answering his phone. So Fisher just takes off and chases this guy. And things go from bad to worse. Fisher basically ends up finding out where he is, tracks him down, corners him, but he can't get up the road where he has to go to because this guy's got a four-wheel drive and uh, Riley walks up the road. And the guy tries to run him down. So, oh, sorry, Fisher tries to... It goes up to try and get him. The guy tries to run Fisher down. Fisher shoots at him and kills him. And then everything turns to mud, basically. Uh, Riley gets hauled over the coals for not taking, giving good supervision and why did he allow this guy to go off and do it? Fisher, of course, is under investigation for um, having been having shot this guy, which is understandable. So, And then there's a big... Uh, the surveillance ring has a big capture for captures all this uh, all, all this drug stuff coming into around Galway so things started bad for Riley and they have really just got a heck of a lot worse so he's just actually suspended and Fisher is pushed out of the uh, detective area and he has to go and actually work for his father in a small country town that basically said just go there and you're sort of on a secondment to him go back and learn how it is to be a real good police officer Right. Well, of course, Fisher's father's not really terribly good. He's an old-style guy and just basically wants to whitewash everything get everything over. But while he's there, Fisher finds, uh, comes across a murder uh, or comes across a suspicious death, which has been whitewashed by his father. So he has to work around his father to work out what's going on. Riley, in the meantime, is basically just hanging around, but he's very suspicious of what everything's been going on. And he's... In, in the Galway Police Department. So he starts to try and investigate all of the, what he believes there's a whole lot of corruption going on. And he puts his he puts his career on the line, pretty much, to be able to do this investigation. Goes to see, says the wrong things to a number of people, goes to see people and puts puts himself there. And it's it works out very well. This is a very well-plotted book. And I was really... Um, quite pleased to see that the author has allowed her main characters to get a lot of heat on them. Riley is... Well, by, by this stage, his partner has decided to move away from Galway because she didn't like what happened in the second book. And she's actually gone to work in Belgium. And he, Riley, goes over to visit her a couple of times, but he's distracted the whole time and it's not a very things don't work out very well and there's a you can just see if frictions and breaks and fractures starting to occur in that relationship and you get the impression that his partner wants to stay in Belgium because she's enjoying that job and doesn't go want to go back to Galway and here's Riley in Galway where he really doesn't want to be but he moved there because of his partner and now his partner's left so I was also a little bit critical of the author early in that I thought that the second book in particular could have been written any, placed anywhere. It could have been Cambridge, Oxford, Melbourne, Sydney, Canberra. It could have been anywhere. We didn't really get a view of what the Irish locale was. In this one, I'm starting to see there's a lot more coming through. And it's actually got to... I've got the feeling that this particular story could only have been told in this place at that time, in this time. And that basically tells me that the author has moved ahead a fair bit in terms of her technique. She's got like everything under control, but she's also willing to put the boots into her main character a bit and not mollycoddle him all the way. Enjoyed this one a lot. I know that you're looking forward to reading it. I think that's yes. right, isn't it? Yeah, you haven't read it yet. No, no. I think but, you really enjoyed this. I, yeah. I haven't given away any spoilers. So no, good. I've been trying to keep away from that because I knew that you didn't want me to. <laughs> I was just basically setting things up. So I gave this one a 4.3 out of 5. I reckon I gave the second one about 4. So this is about, this is back to where the first one was, I reckon, in terms of quality. So you've really got that idea where authors, and this happens a lot in the science fiction field that you and I would have seen over the years, that authors, when they write a, a trilogy or a series of books, 
really good first book. Second one, yeah. not, so good. not so good. And then yeah. they bring it all together in the third and then they yeah. finish it off. I've got a feeling there's an ongoing series going on here with uh, Cormac Riley, but she's set it up. So this is almost a transitional book. Mm. But I'm not going to tell you why. You have to read this to be able to yeah, figure it right. out. And I'll, I think that you'll see that. that there is opportunities here for the author to move him in any number of different directions, but it's almost... Yeah, it's come together very nicely, so I enjoyed this. Oh, it, it sounds good. My my wife actually list, actually read this, if you like, read in quotes, because she, she listened to it as an audiobook. She uh, she often listens to audiobooks while she uh, does uh, craft work, while she knits and whatever. So, okay. And she said there was there was one point where she she put it down. She couldn't she couldn't keep listening because she was really scared about what was going to happen to the <laughs> to one of the characters, and and, and she, she couldn't bear it. But then she finally went back to it, and it was all it, you know it was it went worked out well. So uh, I think that that's that's a good clue. So yes, I'm looking forward to reading that. But I didn't just didn't have time this time around. I think that's uh, a pretty good way of. A good recommendation in the sense that if somebody gets a bit, if the tension builds up that much in a detective novel, then you know you're hitting the right notes. And I think that it, uh, people, if they've read this, will enjoy it. You don't need to read the first two, but I think that in an ongoing series like this, part of the whole deal is the gradual building up of the character. So you're getting more of a background, you get more of more of the history, and you can understand why it's important that he goes to Belgium to see his partner and what happens when he comes back. And all of that all comes together very nicely. Sure, indeed. All right. Well, I uh, say I was, uh, I am still looking forward to reading that book, but uh, I needed to finish a couple of books for this <laughs> episode of the podcast. And I was running a bit late on time. So anyway, the one, the one that I just finished, in fact, finished yesterday afternoon, is called The Survivors by Jane Harper. Now, when I when I read this, I, I I thought, why is there a common? Is there something common? Some sort of common pattern to a number of the the crime books I've read this year, and what is it? And I, I figured it out anyway. That basically it is that they all have this same basic theme: the protagonist returns to the place where he or she grew up, which is an Australian coastal town. This is this is becoming a classic yeah, Australian uh, noirish style. It's, isn't it? it's a what would you call it a trope or whatever. That returns to where they grew up, Australian coastal town. Some sort of crime is committed, and long buried secrets from the past emerge. And I, I went back through what I've been reading this year because I say it just seems so familiar. And these are the books which I reckon fit that. The Broken Shore by Peter Temple, where the the policeman is posted to his hometown of Port Munro. Silver by Chris Hammer, which I rather trashed on the podcast, but he returns to his, his home place uh, of uh, Port Silver. Resurrection Bay, which I'll have a few words to say about l- later, by Emma Viskic, and he, he returns to his hometown of Resurrection Bay on the Victorian coast. Uh, the Silence by Susan Allett, who uh, she returns to a seaside suburb of Sydney and deep secrets from the past emerge. Anyway, the same pattern, as I say, applies to this book, The Survivors, by Jane Harper. So this one is set in a town called Evelyn Bay, and it's on the east coast of Tasmania. I'm pretty sure it's the east coast. I was trying to work it out, but I think it's the east coast of Tasmania. And the protagonist is uh, someone called Kieran Elliott. Uh, he's a, sort of in his 20s, mid-20s, early 30s, maybe. And he's come back to this hometown, Evelyn Bay, with his girlfriend, Mia, and their baby daughter, Audrey, because he's helping his mother, Verity, pack up their family home. Kieran's father, Brian, has been badly affected by dementia and really needs uh, better treatment somewhere, or probably to go into a home somewhere. So we get a few early indications that something in the past has happened uh, to Kieran, uh, about which he feels considerable ongoing guilt. And gradually it emerges that 12 years earlier, there was a terrible storm uh, in the area, uh, which caused a great deal of damage to the town. And three people lost their lives in the storm. And one of these was a 13-year-old girl, Gabby, who appears to have been washed away up to sea, with only her backpack uh, eventually being found washed up on the shore. And the other two people who died were two young men aboard a catamaran, which overturned during, uh, during the storm. Now, one of the young men on board this boat was Kieran's older brother, Finn, 
and uh, the catamaran was actually sailing close to the cliffs uh, in an attempt to rescue Kieran himself, uh, who had been trapped there, stuck there by the tide. And hence his deep feelings of guilt because he feels he's caused his brother's death and the death of this other young guy. Now, there's a, the area where Kieran was is, is, is key to a, a lot of the story. And it's a set of caves in the cliffs at the back of, of the beach. And presumably because of the action of the water over time, they've got these caves go deep within the cliffs. And uh, they were often explored by Kieran and his school friends. And sometimes they would take girls there. But the caves are dangerous because at high tide, the, the, uh, the exits are blocked and they fill up with water. And near to the entrance of these caves is a group, a statue, if you like, or uh, it's a group of statues. It's a group of three iron figures called the Survivors, uh, for hence the title of the book, uh, placed there as a memorial to a 19th century shipwreck just off the coast. And the, the people go take diving trips down to this wreck. And Kieran had taken a girlfriend into the caves that day and then sort of gone to sleep, and which is how he came to be, they came to be trapped by the tide. And although the girl manages to climb out qu- quickly and get to the steps ahead of him, he, he's stuck and gets washed back and sort of clings to the cliffs. And uh, the girlfriend uh, rings for help, and uh, that's why the, the, uh, the catamaran comes trying to save him. So that's the background. And uh, so they've come back to, to this, this town after 12, 12 years away. And on the first day after they, Kieran and Mia, and Mia, sorry, Kieran and Mia arrive back in Evelyn Bay, they have a night out at the local bar and restaurant with some old school friends, old friends from, from back then, who still live in the town. Now, earlier that day, they'd met with a young woman named Bronte, who works at the bar, and they'd struck up a casual friendship with her. And when now they're at the bar, they chat briefly again with her, and she's a very nice character when she's serving at their table. But the following morning, however, they're shocked to learn that Bronte has been found dead at the shoreline, not far from the holiday house where she'd been staying. And it appears that she's been, take, she'd been taken down to the, to the water and forcibly drowned. And suspicion initially falls on a young guy called Liam, who worked with Bronte and who had driven, who admits that he drove her home that night, the previous night. And uh, Liam's father was actually one of the two men who drowned in the storm 12 years earlier. And Liam is therefore very hostile to Kieran because he blames it for his father's death. So there's a lot swirling around here about all these relationships, past and present, between the 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 the, the, the original school friends and uh, these other characters in, in in the area. And one of the book's themes, I think, is is how is that how we think of ourselves, how we picture ourselves, isn't always the way that others think of us. And how we think of others, even people close to us, may be quite mistaken because of things that we don't know about them or what experiences they've had. And it's also really about how we can recall incidents in the past, but that may also be mistaken and missing important facts. And the, the, this slowly bubbles up because eventually a lot of these hidden uh, hidden facts start coming to the surface because of this, uh, this incident. And I think the author does a... I think she does a, a pretty good job of exploring uh, all these relationships, revealing these past secrets. And she's very clever, I think, at, at leading you subtly to suspect various people of Bronte's murder. Of several people, I thought, oh, it's got to be that person. Uh, and and uh, no, it wasn't. <laughs> so that's good. That's what you wanted in mystery. So gradually, the author pulls the threads together and unexpected thing, um, things emerge, both about what happened during the big storm and in the present day. Uh, I didn't see the, the solution coming, but when it does, it does sort of fit all the information you've been given, and it does make perfect sense of the of all these disparate, disparate threads. So you think, oh yeah, that's that's just right. So I thought this was another, a really another really good book by one of Australia's best crime writers. I think it's her fourth book. That would be right. She re- she started off she started off with the dry, and then there was one I didn't read, which was I've forgotten what the second one's called. Sense of nature, force of nature, force of nature. That's right, uh, and that that again as a second book was not terribly well regarded. I think, but yeah. then she wrote um, the, the Lost, Lost Man, Man which, was, which which I really liked. Yeah. yeah, which was very well received, and uh, then there's this one. So she, yeah, she's she's back on track. I think with some really good writing. I, I do have one nitpick about the about the book. Okay, and that's that you've got these iron iron mind these iron statues of the survivors who are literally on the beach in front of the caves. They're inundated twice a day by the tides. 
and they've been there for by salt water, and they've been there for twelve years. I don't know about you, but I rather suspect they might be pretty rusty by now. I would have thought and so. Probably would have fallen apart. But anyway, that's that is a nitpick. But other than that, I, I thought it was a, a very good book. I'm looking forward to any more she might write. It'll be certainly one of those that'll be probably on the Christmas list this year for us. I think that both my wife and I will, will um, want to read it. So. That will be, after our discussion last week of how books come into the house, that'll be one that um, will certainly be able to come into the house uh, and certain we'll both read it. Looking forward to that. Yeah, well, I, I definitely recommend it, yeah. Cool, good. Um, you said earlier that you had a book that was only slightly associated with our particular topic. Well, I have as well, and this is mine. All right. Um, I want to take you way back to sometime in the middle of last year, David, when I was speaking about the Carla trilogy, the Quest for Carla trilogy by John Le Carre. Yep. Uh, and uh, I was talking about that particular set of books. And I had hoped at that time to be able to read this book that I'm going to read, A Legacy of Spies. But I've got a little story to tell you about this particular book. Okay. I bought it when it first came out, thinking, yes, I've got to read those Carla books, which I did, and then I'll read this. The book got put somewhere and I couldn't find it. <laughs> okay. It was in the house. I knew it was in the house somewhere, but for the life of me, I just couldn't find it. I knew where I thought it was, <clears throat> looked everywhere, couldn't find it. Well, I was sitting on a chair in the lounge room, one that I don't normally sit in, and I happened to look over to one side and I thought, hang on. What's that book doing sitting on top of those other ones right at the back? So I went in, pulled things out of the way, pulled it out, and lo and behold, there yeah, it was. was. Very good. So it had been pretty much where I thought it should have been, but it had been resting on top of books that were standing vertically. So this was horizontal and it was pushed right to the very back. And I just happened to have to sit in a particular seat to be able to find it. So I thought... Well, I can sneak it into this uh, crime, crime, crime thing that we're talking about. Indeed, so here indeed. we are. So if you like, this is another one of the this is another one of the George Smiley series of books that Lucari has written. I think it's more. It's probably better to talk about them as being associated with uh, the circus, the name that he gives to the um, central uh, the the intelligence agency in the UK because they were based in and around that. Um, Piccadilly Circus? Uh, Cambridge. Cambridge, Cambridge Circus. Cambridge Circus. That's right. You're right. Uh, Piccadilly's a little bit too uh, busy. Cambridge is just that smaller one, and Oxford's too big, and Cambridge is just about right, okay. so it was in there, so they called it the circus. Now, people will remember that this sort of thing starts off uh, way back when, back in the 60s, when Le Carre wrote uh, the book Spy That Came In From The Cold. And this particular book, A Legacy of Spies, deals specifically with the spy that came in from the cold. It reads like there's been something chewing at the back of Le Carre's head since he wrote that book in the mid-60s, so over 50 years back, that he's had this thing niggling him the whole time and he's decided that he has to actually close it off. And that's what this book attempts to do. Now, the reason why I'm bringing that up in, uh, in, in that way is that when you get to the end of the if you want to read this book, I do think it is probably a very good idea for you to have read The Spy That Came In From The Cold or be familiar with it. So either you've seen the film, the one that had Richard Burton in the role of Alec, um, Alec Lemus, or uh, either you've read it or you've seen the film recently. I think recently enough so that you know the story. So basically, if you remember A Spy That Came In From The Cold, Alec Lemus is, is an old spy and tired and uh, he's near the end of his tether doesn't really want to do this much anymore. But Control, who's the head of uh, the circus, convinces him to go for one last major mission. And this is a mission that's got a long time period. It takes years to bring to fruition. The whole aim of this thing is to ensure that they can get a particular person that British intelligence have installed in East German intelligence in, in, intelligence in the Stasi, they can get their man to be at the top or near the top. Their man has a an opponent inside the Stasi who doesn't like him, thinks he may have been compromised, 
And what Lemus's job to do is to try to get wangle his way all the way into the Stasi by actually committing a crime, getting jailed, staying in jail for four years, then coming out, or a number of years, then coming out, being basically acting like an alcoholic right at the bottom of his of his um, of of the pile, and getting recruited by the East Germans. So it's a long game that they play. It works. They get him in. I can tell you all this because. Basically, the book's 50 years old. If you haven't read The Spy That Came In From The Cold Now, why haven't you? Because it is one of the great... It's one of the great novels of the mid-20th mid century, in my view. It doesn't matter what genre it's in. It's just tremendous. Yep. Anyway, yep. there's a number of questions that are, have been left behind. Like, first off, how did they get the guy into the Stasi in the first place? How did they find somebody to get in there? And also, why did they basically pretty much throw Lemus away? Now, this particular book starts off with Peter Gwillem, who was actually in The Spy That Came In From The Cold, but gets a starring role in uh, Ticket Taylor Soldier Spy, when that's the one where Smiley has left the circus, but gets brought back in by the minister as an outside expert to be able to investigate the possibility that there's a mole in the circus. And he picks Gwillem as his guy on the inside to be able to go in and get the files they need to bring out, because he's worked with Gwillem before. Gwillem actually does appear in The Spy That Came In From The Cold, although I had forgotten that he had done so. Uh, so I went back and checked him. Lo and behold, there he is. Anyway, so this particular book deals with the children, a child of Alex, um, Alex Lemus, and the child of a woman who's recruited by Gwillem, brought back from... Well, he he helps the defect get out from East Germany to get into a safe house in the UK where she's being interrogated. And at that point, something happens to her, which leads to the fact that the circus is able to recruit this guy that they push ahead through into the intelligence. Her daughter or her child and Lemus's child have decided to sue the intelligence services for basically killing their parents. I thought this is first off. I thought this was a little bit far fetched. I wouldn't. I would have thought that the British government just would have said, "Look, this is national security. You can't do anything. And if you're going to do it, we're not going to do it in an open open court. So nobody's ever going to hear about what happens." But anyway, the whole this whole thing rolls along, and it's really, I think, more from the point of. Lacare's idea that he wants to close off this outstanding problem that he has with the earlier novel. So you need to be aware that that is the thing that sort of ticks along in the background. Smiley does appear at the end of this book because Gwilym goes looking for him and has a bit of a chat to him. Doesn't really help very much, and Smiley must be getting close to a hundred by this stage. <laughs> what a fun time. And he's he's sitting in um, uh, a university in Heidelberg reading um, German poets, which he'd already said, always said, was one of his um, uh, major interests in life was German poets. It does help to have read the earlier books in this series. This helps sort of round it off. I don't believe it's up to the level of either Spy that Came In from the Cold or Ticker Taylor Soldier Spy, which is another one of the great novels of the late 20th, uh, second half of the 20th century. Um, not up to those levels, but I gave it a 4.3. I'm a fan of this sort of stuff. I really like reading about it and I can just keep on going. Um, not very much happens in this book, but frankly, I don't care. I really enjoyed it. It was good, <laughs> to, good. It's good to be back in the company of these people again and good to be back in the company of Lacare writing a, a novel that I can really get down to and enjoy. That, that sounds great. I mean, there, there are certain authors that that you really want to keep coming back to like that, don't they? So, and I reckon that there are, sm for me, there are a small number of authors whose work I like so much that whenever I hear that a new book of theirs is coming out, it's an instant bang, you know, I'm going to go out and buy it regardless. I don't even want to re read the reviews. If there's another, if there's another book, book by this person, I'm going to get it. Well, in fact, it probably sometimes helps that you don't read the reviews in case somebody tells you something that you don't want to hear. <laughs> That's exactly right. Anyway, I was th so I was thinking about this, and I, I reckon there are four, at the moment, and it varies obviously as, as time goes by. But at the moment, I reckon there are four authors like that at the moment for me. One of them is James S. A. Corey because he because they've written the Expanse series, and uh, as soon as the next uh, next volume of the Expanse series comes out, 
you know, bang, I'm going to buy it. Susanna Clark, who wrote Jonathan Strange, and who just we talked last episode about Piranesi. Uh, but I mean, with her, it's, you know, with only two books in 14 years, it's not exactly something that's going to break the bank. Other one would be Kate Atkinson, whose work I've talked about several times on the podcast, whose work I really love. So any, any new book by her, so bang, I'm going to get it. And the, the last one is the one I'm going to talk about today, and that's Tana French. So when I saw that there was a new Tana French novel, The Searcher, coming out this year, I jumped in immediately and bang, pre-ordered it. Didn't read any reviews, bang, I was going to get it. So and now after finishing it, I've now read all of her novels so far, and they're all excellent, and all highly recommended. So I thought I'd give a little bit of background on her. I won't talk too long about uh, her previous books, but I'll just mention them briefly. So Tana French has got quite an interesting background. She's She'd now be in, in her 40s, I guess, and uh, she was born in the United States. But her father was an international economist, uh, did uh, work, I think, in resource management for third world countries and so on. And so he traveled very widely for his work. And... Uh, so, and the family went with him. And so during her childhood, she lived in a number of different countries before settling in into Ireland, where she attended Trin- Trinity College in Dublin and was trained as an actor. And uh, she's performed in theatre, film, and as a voiceover actor. And like any actor, though, she's she'd had long gaps between engagements, as actors do. And during one such lull, she started writing her first novel, which is called In the Woods, which came out in 2007 and was very well received. It won several awards, including the Edgar Award for Best First Novel. Now, the first six of her books are all police procedural mysteries centred around the Dublin Murder Squad, which is a fictitious branch of the Irish police force, the Garda. And what I found interesting about these books is that uh, each one of them is written in the first person by one of the detectives in the squad, but each novel is is from the point of view of a different detective, and it's really quite interesting because because all these all these people who are doing these first person points of view you've encountered in the earlier books, and so you might have a character appear in one of the earlier books who might be a bit of a seen as a bit of a bastard by the point of view character of that book, but then a later book you actually get to see things from their point of view out of their head and, and with a different slant on things but with different sets of um, events that are, that are occurring and different mysteries to solve. So that's, I think that's very interesting. We get the, you get these different shifting points of view of the group and, and the people who, who are working in the group and their relationships between each other. So those Dublin Murder Squad novels are all very good, and I say I recommend them all. And out of them all, because I'm not going to describe them all now, but out of them all, I reckon the one that I like the best is called is the third one, which is called Faithful Place. So I'm not going to do a review of all of those. Maybe one day I'll, I'll, but I'll have to reread them all, and then I'll uh, I'll come back and and do something on the podcast about them about the whole whole lot of them. But they're they're all extremely good. And apparently there's a TV series, uh, The Dublin Murder Squad, based on those books commissioned by the BBC, but I, I haven't uh, I haven't caught up with that as yet. Uh, then she brought out her seventh novel, which is called The Witch Elm. And that was a real break away from her earlier work. And while it deals with a murder, a skeleton is discovered stashed away in a hollow within an old tree. Um, while it deals with a murder, the point of view character isn't a policeman and the story's got nothing to do with The Dublin Murder Squad. It's also a very long book. And some of her fans reacted rather against this and, and uh, because it's so different from her earlier books. But I think it's just different. It's no less, no less noteworthy. Still, still a good book. So finally, I get to talk about her latest book, The Searcher, which was released about a month ago. And again, it's a bit of a, bit of a break away from her earlier work. For a start, it's the first one of her novels, which is written in the, the third person rather than the first person. And it's also written in the present tense. And it's not set in Dublin, but in a small town in a county in the west of Ireland. And the main character is an American called Cal. He's in his 50s, retired from the police department in Chicago. He's divorced and uh, he seems to have moved to Ireland to seek a break from his previous life and associates both within the police force and within the, uh, within the crime community. So he's bought a small property, which includes a rundown house, which is slowly renovating himself. Now, Cal has got a daughter in America who's in her 20s, mid-20s, I think, and he's in very good, on very good terms with her. He rings her quite often, unlike his ex-wife, who uh, really doesn't want to speak to him at all. 
But he worries about this daughter quite a lot, and about her safety and about her relationships. And, you know, he's sort of wanting to protect her, even though he's a long way away and uh, can't be there. And he rings her, so he rings her quite often. But if he, he stresses out, if he, he gets a feeling of anything that's tense in her manner on the phone, so he's sort of really, really hyper protective of her. Anyway, as the book opens, uh, Cal is carrying out, is doing these renovations, so he's, and he's carrying out a bin filled with bits of wallpaper he's been stripping from the walls. And as he returns to the house, a nearby flock of rooks, birds, uh, scared by something, and go flapping up into the sky. And that, and th- he just he thinks, oh, this is this is another instance. He, he's had this sense for a, for a while, about a week and a half, that someone's watching him. He has this sort of, you know, sixth sense of, of someone watching him. He's picked up from the police force. You know, he gets the sense of someone having their eyes on him. And so he eventually takes steps to prove to himself that he's not imagining it. And um, he sort of, he does a thing where he sort of um, levels out the the, uh, the ground in front of these windows and spreads thinly fine soil there. And so he, the next day you can sort of see footprints. So someone definitely is looking in through his windows at night. One night he comes close to catching this person. He knows that they're there and he sneaks out a way that they don't know. He actually climbs through his bathroom window quietly and comes around behind them and grabs hold of them. And he discovers it's just a kid, but uh, the kid bites him really hard and he has to let, let them go. And uh, he tries to catch catch the kid, but the kid runs away and he can't, can't get, it, get hold of them. Now, Cal's on pretty reasonable terms with his neighbours, including Marty, who's a sort of old Irish farmer, who's his neighbour. And uh, some of the, he's also gets on reasonably well with some of the locals at the pub. So he cautiously asks around. He's trying to figure out which families around have got kids who are in their early te- early teens who might be wanting to stir him up, give him a bit of, him a bit of a hard time. And his suspicions fall on a family called Reed who have got five children. Their father's long since pissed off and, and abandoned their mother. And so uh, it, the, and the kids are a bit wild. So eventually he manages... He's still trying to track this, this kid down. So he eventually manages to entice the kid closer during the day. I won't go into the details of how he does that. And finally, the, the kid talks to him. And the kid's name is Trey. And so Cal gets Trey, eventually sort of get, gets this kid to, to walk, open up a bit and uh, gets Trey to help him with the renovations he's doing. He's sort of cleaning up a, an old desk and stuff like that. But all the time he gets this feeling that Trey wants something from him that there isn't that Trey's been watching and is involved with him that is that Trey wants to ask him something and it finally comes out that Trey knows that Cal was a cop in America and wants his help to relocate Trey's older brother Brendan who apparently left home about five months ago and hasn't been seen of since initially Cal refuses to do this and when he does that, Trey just reacts really violently, you know, splashes paint everywhere over the desk they've been cleaning up and runs off. And uh, it takes quite a while before he manages to get Trey back again. And uh, ultimately, he agrees to help help and starts to make cautious inquiries about this brother. And uh, not surprisingly, he starts to get some resistance from locals who don't want their secrets revealed because this quite little Irish town isn't as placid a place as Cal imagined when he moved there. Now it's not like it's not like a, a horror story where all these people have got some deep, dark, secret buried bodies, you know, buried uh, buried secrets around the place. But there's still things that the locals don't want to tell him because he's an outsider. And um, it, it's one of the things that sort of comes out of the book is that that like many. You know, so we sort of imagine places like Ireland, the, the rural parts of Ireland or rural parts of, of Europe as being sort of idyllic. But in fact, there are serious problems because most of the farmers are getting to be old men and profits from farming are low and getting lower. And many of the young people in the town tend to leave the country and head off for, for, the, for the lights of a bigger city like Dublin. And, of course, that tends to lead to a temptation to look for other ways of making money, not necessarily legal ones. So the main interest and focus of this book is really about this relationship that develops between Cal and and the young Trey, which in itself has an unexpected twist or two, uh, because Trey has got some serious issues. And in turn, it's interesting, really, that, that that that. leads to an, a shift in understanding between Cal and his daughter because he, he actually consults her to get advice about 
the rat young Trey. And she gives him all this really detailed advice because she works as a, as a counselor or something. And uh, he, he, she gives him all this really detailed advice. And suddenly while, when she does that, he, he suddenly realizes that for the first time he sort of recognizes her as a mature adult and she's able to take care of herself. It's sort of a real revelation for him. So uh, eventually, of course, we, we find out what happened to Brendan and, uh, and why. Um, but I won't go into that detail. That would be too much of a spoiler for a book that's only just out. But uh, we do eventually find out. And so, yeah, I, I, I like this book a lot. Definitely recommended, like all her books. <laughs> so, yeah. My wife um, has started just recently um, with the first of the Dublin murders. Oh, yeah. Uh, found the first one. You know, I asked her, because I always like finding out how, how she's going with it, because she reads it on the iPad. I said, oh, how's, how's it going? <clears throat> Because you can never see on an iPad how far through a book somebody is. You see, that's yeah, always yeah. that's a that that's a problem. You don't know if they just started or right near the end. Yeah. So I said, "Oh, how's it going?" He said, "Oh, it's very long. It's a bit slow. Oh, but I'll stay with it." A day or so later, how's it going? Oh, I'm really enjoying it now. It's really starting to kick off. Okay, she finished. She finished that one off. Plowed. plowed Straight into the second one. Oh, how's that going? Oh, this one's really good. Yeah, so yeah. once you got into the role of things, it actually sort of started to pick up and sort of carry along, which is good. Yeah. yeah. One of the interesting things about the first one is, is again, not giving too many spoilers away, but is is that there's a, a mystery in it, which at the end of the book isn't resolved, and that's quite a deliberate choice by the author, not not to not to resolve that particular mystery. I think that it's interesting that that actually works quite well. It's left up in the air, and that's. That's quite nice, I think, in a in story. I don't know of another crime series. You may, but I don't. Wish anybody's used this particular technique. Maybe did Ed McBain do it? Because yeah, he wrote a whole lot about the something precinct in New York. I don't know if he just used a whole lot of different characters. I know that I know that Ian Rankin has written a number of books where uh, he's got sort of three main characters and they all sort of move around and sometimes he'll write a book about um, uh, Malcolm Fox and Siobhan Clark or um, uh, Rebus, John Rebus will appear uh, they won't be there as the main character that he's following but these are not told from the first person, these are told in the third person uh, uh, so you just get like it's just another slice of this particular part of life and the other characters flow through. But I haven't heard of anybody doing it exactly like this before. Yeah, yeah, but it's interesting. It's it's, it's very good. Well, yeah. well, it certainly sounds like an interesting technique. And really, it only gets down to the stage where we are, David, where we've seen so many books and read so many books over the, over the journey. An interesting technique is sometimes all that it takes to pipe, uh, pipe your interest. And if that's the case, it can carry on. And sort of these little things that go on. You know, you were sort of saying that earlier on that you're starting to see this similar sort of plot device of returning home to a country town that you grew up in um, in Australia and, oh, lo and behold, there's a murder or something's happened from the past that people have to solve. That's good, but how long is that going to be able to last before people yeah. go, oh, not again? No, again, that's right. Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be difficult. Um, the Dry by Jane Harper is has been filmed and I happen to see it... Uh, a poster for it in the cinema oh, yeah. uh, down the street just the other day. I think it's probably coming up maybe sometime in the first quarter of next year uh, with uh, Eric Banner in the lead role. So that I thought I'd seen that. Yeah, he'd, he'd be an excellent choice. Yeah, I think... Yeah. I, I th- look, it'll be certainly one of those ones that'll be worthwhile having a look at, and I think we should basically uh, make sure we both get to see it at some stage early, and we'll talk about that, because we have spoken a lot about Jane Harper and as we should, because she is a, an excellent writer. Yeah, she's one of our best writers, that's for sure. That's for sure. Okay, well, I'm going to move on to two particular books now that uh, are related in a particular way, which I will explain, but they're both novels written 70 years apart. The first of these is Strangers on a Train by Patricia Highsmith, written in 1950 as her debut novel. Oh, right. most, most people will remember this from the fact that it was um, filmed in 1951 by Alfred Hitchcock. I've seen, I've seen the film. Thought, yeah, I enjoyed, I enjoyed the film. I thought that was good. Uh, but um, I uh, haven't... Um, I hadn't read the book previously. 
so it was interesting to come across this one and read this at this time. This is a much, much darker novel than Hitchcock would lead you to believe. Hitchcock, I think, was interesting. Well, to give people the idea, two people, uh, two, two blokes, Guy Haynes and Charles Anthony Bruno, meet on a train. Um, Guy Haynes is an architect. He's going to visit his parents, his, his mother, and see his estranged wife. He wants a divorce. She's trying to manipulate him to not get one, and he's not sure what's going on. He's trying to figure it out so that he can get a divorce to marry um, uh, the woman Anne Faulkner. Charles Anthony Bruno is a wealthy socialite tearaway who hates his father, thinks his father hates him, and basically decides that, you know, Bruno decides that he wants his father dead. Now, these two guys get to talking. Bruno sort of leads the conversation. And it comes to the point where they start thinking about, well, Bruno thinks that they have come to an agreement where they are going to swap murders. So they're going to perform the perfect murder. I'll kill yours and you kill mine. There's no connection between us except this particular meeting and we never talk to each other again. Yep. So... Haynes is not sure that he's got this, he's agreed to this. In fact, he hasn't really agreed to it. But a couple of weeks later, his ex-wife is murdered in the park. He knows straight away exactly who it is. And he doesn't know what to do. Does he go and tell the cops? Does he not? If he tells the police he has to tell them about this, then Bruno will say, well, he agreed to do that. So there's a conspiracy to murder that he might be up on. There might be an accessory to the fact that he sort of goaded uh, Bruno along. Um, so he doesn't really know what to do. But he leaves it a bit. And he's trying to work out what he's actually going to, going, to, going to do with his life and what he's going to do. And Bruno starts to get in contact with him again. Bruno's tracked him down because, um, well, he knows where the wife was and he's figured everything out. He's going to, he, he tracks him down. And the book is mainly about the interactions between the two of them as Bruno tries to put more and more and more pressure on on Haynes to go ahead and commit the murder that Bruno wants him to, that is to go and kill his father. Now, I think in the film, I've forgotten it, but I think Haynes is a... Uh, I've got a feeling that he's a tennis player, or maybe it's Bruno's tennis player, one of them. Uh, they, Hitchcock changed the things a bit, and Hitchcock was more interested in the actual murders themselves, whereas Highsmith is dealing with the pressure that Bruno is putting on Haynes and the guilt that Haynes feels about all this and what he's got to do, and it's the psychological thriller that he's, she's more interested in. The murders are done just like that. They happen. And you don't really care because that's not the point. What you're after here is the interaction between the two characters. This is a classic in the field, always considered to be one of the great crime novels, and it was it's a debut novel mm. written in 1950. If I've got a if I've got a quibble with it, I might say that it's probably about fifty pages too long. But really, that's a fairly minor quibble. It's just you know one of those things that it just hit me that I thought oh, this is going on just a tad too long. But I can understand why she did it. It's an excellent book, and if you've got any interest in the crime field at all, and you want to fill in some of your background in terms of what has been done, this is one of the books that you should read. Okay. Smith is probably also um, well known for The Talented Mr. Ripley, which has been filmed a couple of times. That's another film in a sort of similar psychological thriller style, more interested in the characters than the act. Both both worth people's time. Now, the other book that I wanted to uh, talk about here was a book called Rules for Perfect Murders. I bought this, I read a review of it, and I was looking for something for my wife for Christmas or a birthday, saw this, oh, that looks pretty good, I'll buy that. So I bought that for her, she read it, thought, thought it was okay. And while I was looking up bits and pieces about um, uh, stranger, uh, Strangers on a Train, I saw that Rules for a Perfect Murders related back to it. Okay. Oh, I thought, well, maybe I should read that and read the two of them. And yes, I'm glad I did. Because what happens is that um, uh, in Rules for Perfect you know, for Perfect Murders, which is published this year, in 2020, 70 years after Strangers on a Train, the main character, Malcolm Kershaw, is living a quiet life as a proprietor of a crime and mystery bookshop in Boston. Now, 10 or so years after he's been doing this, 
He's approached at the start of the novel by an FBI agent who comes to the store, wants to speak to him and says, I'd like to have a chat to you about a blog post that you wrote all those years ago. What are you talking about? Oh, when you, she says, I've come across this blog post that you wrote, which is your list of the eight perfect murders in crime fiction. Now, I should also point out at this point that Rules for Perfect Murders is, I believe, the British title for this novel. The American title is Eight Perfect Murders. Why they changed it, God alone knows, but anyway, there we are. So Kershaw's written this blog post about about what he considers to be the novels with eight perfect murders in them. One of them being the ABC Murders, which was on ABC television just recently with John Malkovich playing uh, Hercule Poirot, which is a uh-huh. very interesting uh, um, casting. That one was, uh, if you recall, by Agatha Christie. The murderer decides, murderer decides he wants to kill a particular person, but he tries to hide it by killing people with a connection in a certain way so that that person that he does want to kill gets caught up in the miss in, 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 in the mix. So they can't separate that person out from the others and therefore the other two murders that uh, the murderer commits are there as distractions only. So anyway, the, um, the FBI agent believes that there's been a series of murders being committed which seem to be following his blog post. So... She asked him to come along and check out this particular um, come along and check out this particular person, the victim that's died. Seems a bit strange that the FBI agent would do this, but anyway, they do. And as the novel progresses, Kershaw, who's writing this in the in the first person, starts to see connections with his past life in terms of what's happening with these particular murders, and he starts remembering things and starts talking about things that he's done in his past life. Uh, he does not want to tell the FBI agent. Kershaw uh, accompanies the FBI agent to this particular murder. He starts seeing things that are happening. He remembers things that are happening uh, in his past past life, and he starts hiding things from the FBI agent. So you start getting a bit of an idea about there's a lot here that's going on that you you don't know. There's a big connection to Strangers on a Train because that's one of the books that he lists in his blog post. Um, and there's a murder that's committed in association with this particular book uh, that relates to Strangers on a Train. This is a competent mystery, maybe a tad gimmicky for some people. I didn't pick the killer. I got half of it right, but I think I was probably trying to be a little bit too smart for myself. Right. I asked my wife who read it. She said, oh, yeah, I picked it halfway through. She's always doing <laughs> oh, that. Oh, she's good at that. She's yeah. always doing that. And she'll tell you, well, you just do it like this, big, 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 and you go, oh, yeah, that's exactly the person I should have been looking for, and I wasn't. <laughs> so she figures it out straight away. Oh, that would take all the fun out of it. Anyway, uh, if you want to, um, I, I would suggest that if you read this, it's, it, this is a book for crime fans who like relationships back to other books. So it lists a number of books that um, you can go back and reread, uh, Strangers on a Train being one of them. I'm glad I read Strangers on a Train and then read this. The connection between the two is uh, interesting uh, and effective and worthwhile. I gave this one 3.8, so it rounds it up to a 4. Nowhere near as good as um, uh, Strangers on a Train, of course but worth people's while. Indeed, indeed. You, you talk about your uh, your ratings of things, and I thought I, I should have a bit of a, a, bit of a thing about that. Uh, I, I think that we've, we've both agreed that, that on the Goodreads site where you've got a five-star rating system, it's it's awfully clunky, and that's why you have your decimal point system. Yep. And I, I, I figure the difference between me and you is that I tend to round up and you tend to round down. Like if if I if I score something as four point two mentally, I'd, I'd give it a five on 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 Goodreads. Whereas I think you would only give it a four. Yeah, that's a four down. down. But four yeah, yeah. four point five goes to five. Yeah, four point four goes down well, to four. Well, ma- mathematically, mathematically that makes sense. Around, yeah. But but for, for me, it, it's so clunky. I just I, I tend to round up. So <laughs> okay. so there are num- there are a number of books I get I give five stars to on Goodreads that you go what five stars for that. So but that's that's part of the reason. But anyway, that, that I just thought I'd mention that. I just thought I'd very briefly talk about one book, uh, another crime book, which I mentioned earlier when I was talking about this sort of pattern. But I, I don't want to talk about it at any length because I want to read the other books in the series first and then perhaps talk about them as a whole. 
Uh, and so that's uh, Resurrection Bay by Emma Viskic. And as I mentioned earlier, the, the part of it is is the protagonist goes uh, back to his hometown of, uh, of Resurrection Bay. But it's it's interesting in in, in that um, he uh, the the protagonist in this um, is I'm just trying to figure out what his name is. The uh, the protagonist of this is an investigator called Caleb Zelik. And the interesting thing about him is that he's deaf, or at least extremely hard of hearing. He's had um, meningitis as a child, and uh, but he, he really hates to admit that he's deaf, and so he gets into all these awkward situations with the police and whatever because he's trying to cover up the fact that he's deaf. Uh, but despite that disability, he, uh, he he manages to to be an investigator. So so I want I want to talk about the film the I want to talk about the the book now in any detail. But there are another two books uh, in the series which uh, I, uh, I'm looking forward to reading. So I thought maybe I'd finish reading the whole series and then, and then come back and uh, perhaps do a, a bit of a spiel about the whole, um, the whole three of them. And uh, so I'll, I'll leave that for the time being. And I think you had something you wanted to talk about briefly, Perry? I've read Resurrection Bay, um, yep. uh, enjoyed it. Uh, I haven't got to the others in the series, but it's certainly my intention to do so, so maybe we can make sure that... Um, yeah, we, uh, we do it together. We do it together. Yeah, uh, I've, got a, I've also got a real, just a brief mention. Um, as you know, that I'm going back and reading books off the shelf that I've had for a long period of time and then basically putting into the care bins or putting out to um, uh, give away to, uh, to charities. And the one I read uh, recently was the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes. I'm gradually working my way through the Sherlock Holmes stories. So this is the second collection of Sherlock Holmes stories, and it takes Holmes up to his death at the Rickenback Falls. Now, the interesting thing that I found, or a couple of interesting things about this particular collection, and it's, it's odd the way that Moriarty always seems to be the one that is very... Uh, prominent in a lot of uh, uh, TV and film adaptations of Sherlock Holmes stories, mm. yep. but he only appears in one story in this. One and story, that, that's and right. That's the yeah. final problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe he turns up again. Well, I don't know. I think he's just in that one. I don't know whether he turns up again because that's right. He doesn't doesn't turn up again no. because they both go off the off the off the the the, the 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 cliff at the edge of the falls, and so that's that that's a bit strange. Now these stories were a favourite of mine when I was in uh, in my teens. I thought they were absolutely fantastic. That idea of you know getting a problem and just pounding away at it and sort of getting an answer and yes, it all ties together. Fantastic. It's probably why I got into computing, David. Probably the same as you. <laughs> but look, the intervening years have made me a little bit more jaded about these particular stories, and they don't really have the same appeal. I mean, I I enjoyed these. They're competent, enjoyable, but yeah, frankly, I've read them two or three times now. And they don't have the same appeal to me now as they had when I was 15. No, uh, no, that's, that's they, come, they come across as a bit flat. I mean, they're enjoyable, but it's... If you read a lot in a row, you start thinking, he's done this style before, he's done this technique before. Yeah. Same yeah. sort of problem. Yeah, anyway. Possibly it's better to watch the adaptations because there's always something a little bit yeah. different that the, um, that the filmmakers or television producers are putting into it. Um, I, I gave this 3.6 out of 5. One thing that's probably worth noting is that all of those Sherlock Holmes uh, stories and uh, all of the novels are all available because they're in the public domain. They're all available in nicely formatted ebook versions from standard ebooks. In fact, I produced a lot of them because it was fun to do. Good man. So uh, yeah, that's right. So they're all they're all there. All right. So now I'm going to go on to talk about my last book, which is I squeeze into this sort of sort of crime mystery episode. There's sort of a mystery in it. So. But anyway, so this this is my last book. And this is Colorless Tsukuru Tazaki and His Years of Pilgrimage by Haruki Murakami. Apologies to all our Japanese listeners for my terrible Japanese pronunciation. Um, so this is the second book I've read by the, this, uh, this author, and the first being his monumental IQ84, which I've talked about on the podcast, and which I liked a lot, despite, or maybe because of it being very strange, <laughs> But uh, this one, on the other hand, doesn't have any, doesn't really have any fantasy elements to it. It was published in 2014. So we start with the protagonist, Zukuru Tazaki. And he, he at school, was part of a group of five very close friends. And uh, this group of five people was made up of three boys and two girls. 
And it, it was a very tight group, very close, and they did everything together. They worked on community projects and they socialized together, this very tight unit. And they all sort of, it all sort of worked because of everybody in the group. But by unspoken unanimous consent, none of them have coupled up romantically. They feel that that would sort of break apart the, the essence of the group. Now, the interesting thing about these group of people is that the Japanese names of four of them, of these young people, each include a color. And uh, so after a while, they start just referring to each other by these colors. So, for example, one of the, one of the people in the group is a boy called Kai Akamatsu, which means in Japanese red pine. And so he just gets called red. But Zukura's name has no such color connection attached to it. It means something like maker of things or something like that in Japanese. But there's no color involved in it. And so he just gets called Zukuru by his friends. Uh, and hence the title, Colorless Zukuru Tazaki. But the novel starts much later than these high school years. Uh, it's uh, set when Zukuru is in his late 30s. And we discover that after they'd left school in Nagoya, where they all lived, Zukuru alone among the group had gone to college in Tokyo. All the others went to college in Nagoya. Um, he used to come back to Nagoya every time he had a break at college and see his family and see his friends. But about a year and a half after he starts at college, he goes back one time and he rings up his friends, tries to get them, tries to get, tries to get together with them. And, but to his shock, they all refuse to speak to him on the phone. And none of them will return his calls. And he's puzzled and he keeps trying. Uh, but when he finally manages to get in touch and speak with one of the, the boys in the group, he tells to Zukuru that they never want to see him again and to just stop calling. He doesn't give him a reason. No, just go away. We don't want to talk to you ever again. And he just he can't understand it. And he's really baffled and, and hurt after this rejection from this group he was so close a part of. And he returns to Tokyo and he falls into a period of depression. He's sort of filled quite often with thoughts of suicide. Nevertheless, he manages to overcome those thoughts, doesn't commit suicide. And he completes college and starts work as a, an engineer designing railway stations, which has been a long-standing passion. And anyway, so, so 15 or 16 years pass by since this breach. And Zukuru has been unable to settle down to any real permanent relationship with, with a woman and has always felt unsettled in his life um, because of this, you know, this rejection by, by his group. Until he meets a slightly older woman called Sarah and he begins a, a relationship with her. But he eventually she gets out of him uh, the story of his, his background and uh, he tells her this story about being rejected by the group. And she, she tells him that he has to resolve this. He has to, you know, heal this emotional wound for the sake of his, his mental health and for the sake of any future relationship he may have with her. So she tells him that he needs to contact his high school friends and find out why they rejected him so abruptly and with no explanation. So this is, let's say, 15 or 16 years later. So the rest of the book is this pilgrimage which he makes, which eventually takes him as far afield as Finland, and he finds out several disturbing things about what's happened to his friends and why they rejected him so abruptly and forcefully. So I won't, I won't give a spoiler as to what that, that, that was, but um, it, I did find this to be a very interesting character study. It's an intriguing story. And it's a bit like, I suppose, a bit like The Survivors, which I talked about earlier. You could consider the theme to be about how our view of ourselves can be very different from how we're viewed by others even those who are very close to us, and how our memory of the past can be very different from how others remember the same circumstances. And so there's a really kind of a, a melancholy note of what might have been, you know, if only, to, to the book. So though Zukuru does eventually connect with his past and come to terms with what's happened, the novel nevertheless ends on a rather ambiguous note with regard to his relationship with Sarah. I'm not quite sure how that will proceed. So I, I enjoyed it. Um, I, uh, I, I'll probably read some more books by uh, by this author. I don't I haven't read very many books translated from another language, and I should certainly read some more. Uh, it's really always very interesting to read about another culture from from inside, as it were. So we get a lot in this book about uh, living in Japan, living in Tokyo, and and the, the society around him. So it's uh, yeah, it's, it's good. It's well worth well worth the read. I thought. He's uh, been on my list for a long time as somebody that I should have a look at. 
But again, it's just a matter of time, isn't it, David? Trying oh, to figure so out so much time, so, so many books, so little time. It's, it's the story and, of our lives. Oh, yeah, and you sort of you keep on keep on having good intentions. You don't necessarily always meet them. Um, but although the only way that I can do it is to set myself targets at the beginning of the year and at the end of the year admonish myself for not having met them. Um, but uh, every time I go back and look at my reading plan, yes, I must get to more translated books and um, I think I've probably read three or four this year because there's so much coming out in English that it's original English that uh, it's hard to keep up but you have to do the point and um, uh, you have to keep pushing pushing that. Well I think that this, this is quite useful when you if you look at um, list of nominees for awards and so on like the nominees for the of the long list for the Booker Prize or the people who are up for not so much for the Hugo, which still tends to be very American-centric, I yeah. think. But certainly things like the, the, the Booker Prize and some of the, the more international prizes, it's worth keeping an eye on because uh, obviously there are often quite a lot of translated works um, put up for those. And, and you know they're pretty good because they've, they've been nominated for, for a prize like that. Yep. Well, certainly worthwhile yeah. checking out anyway. Yeah, indeed. All right. David, I think that brings us about to the end of this particular episode on crime fiction. So. so thank you for partnering with me through this um, uh, crime journey. And um, <laughs> uh, we can look forward to our next episode in a couple of weeks. There's only two episodes left uh, before the, the end of the year. My goodness me. And um, that's where we are at this stage. So we're going to uh, finish up and uh, we'll... We'll, we'll let people know next week what's happening in the last one of the year uh, yep. if that comes together we're not even terribly sure we're going to do that one just yet but we um, will think about it uh, yep. early in January we're going to be dealing with our best of so that's what January will be all about so people can go away on holiday and forget all about us if they're bored with their best odds for the year. <laughs> well, right. well, we, we, I presume that most, we will have talked about most of those books already. So. We will have, and it's just purely a matter of uh, just reiterating what we revisiting like and just yeah. revisiting it a bit. Uh, but next episode, we're talking about the, uh, the 1965 Hugo Awards, that is for uh, books that were published in 1964. And I don't know about you, David, but I'm starting to see a change in the science fiction field about to occur. Uh, mm, just looking okay. slightly ahead into 66 and 67, the so-called new wave is starting, new wave to, um, starting, to, happen. starting yeah. to happen. New authors are coming out. I do notice, though, that it's still very, very much predominantly male, white Americans that are being uh, nominated for these awards. But there are some younger people coming through. Uh, Zelazny Ellison's coming up. Gwynn will be coming up shortly. Larry Niven, uh, Delaney, probably uh, the um, the biggest the biggest change for most of the uh, people in the SF field at that point, where you've got a um, a, a gay African American appearing on the ballots. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, thank God. Nobody cared. They didn't care whether he was gay. They didn't care whether he was African-American. They just liked his books and liked his stories, and that was all that mattered, and that's all that should matter. So we'll be talking. He's not um, in any. He's not in uh, next uh, the next episode. Next episode, no. But he no. will be coming up uh, in the early part of next year when we deal with further Hugo Awards. So anyway, David, I think that basically takes us to the end of our yep. time. Good talking to you again. Yeah. And we'll speak again in a fortnight. Indeed, indeed. See you then. See you. Bye.